0: In a world where three pudgy middle school history teachers discuss random aspects of history. Well, uh, that's, uh, that's all I got.
1: Oh, Hatfield, we got you. Yeah, I, wait, who you call him Pudgy? Yeah, man, that's kind of rude. No, I'm rude.
0: It's the History Bros Podcast. <laughs>
1: History Bros Podcast on the air once again. Jason Root in Iowa. Jason Hatfield in North Carolina. Carolina, Carolina, whatever it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Brian Geldmacher in Missouri. And uh, today's a big one. Today, we are excited. We have a special guest joining us. Uh, We're going to be talking about a a topic that does not get nearly enough coverage in our country for as much as people like grain alcohol uh, in our country. So, (laughs) we're very excited about that. And actually, I am a little nervous that I'm going to screw this up. So, Hatfield, I'm going to pass this to you because you are, I don't know, because you're Hatfield and you're from North Carolina
0: uh that's true although me being a hatfield in north carolina those are those don't correlate it would be like kentucky and west virginia but that's okay but, but appalachia really just yet uh, so i'm from north carolina depending on what part of <laughs> iowa you're from but about 10 years ago uh, i was living in wilmington north carolina and i had just finished watching i think it was antiques road show <laughs> on pbs and I shortly after that, this documentary came on and it touched upon a lot of aspects of Appalachian culture. We're talking like language, history, resistance to outside authority. And the documentary was called The Last One. And it made a I it was just I don't I don't know how to describe it. Made a huge impact and is one of my favorite documentaries. And so we have the filmmaker with us today, Neil Hutchison. Uh, Neil, welcome to the show.
2: Yeah, thank you.
0: So, um, I I gotta tell you, dude, I am so excited about this podcast. <laughs> I you I mean, I, first of all, I need to apologize to Neil because I have been nagging him for the better part of like a year <laughs> to come on to this show. I've been emailing, and literally, like ten minutes ago was the first time we've actually spoken <laughs> through this. But, um, um, I have. Uh, so anyway, I, I don't want to get I'm like my brain's all over the place.
1: Face it, Hatfield. <laughs> so first Hatfield, just so let's, face it, you are just excited to talk to somebody else in the movie industry again.
0: <laughs> well, hey, well let's let's <laughs> let's also address that Neil has won an Emmy for this documentary. Mm-hmm.
2: Congratulations.
0: So that's I mean that's and it's an amazing documentary. It's called The Last One. Um, but there are other documentaries that he's also made. And uh, Neil, you typically tend to um it seems like you focus a lot on Appalachian history and culture um and it seems like with some of these like um mountain talk which uh, <laughs> I have a list that we'll be going through um <laughs> that it seems like you're you're trying to preserve maybe
2: um I well I guess so you know that's one way to look at it I was really trying to document what I saw that I felt like was fading quickly, mm-hmm. so I guess you could say preserve or document.
0: Okay, okay. And it really so. has
2: faded quickly. I mean, when I look at that film now, that film led to the last one, and it led to other projects, uh, which is why I've done a whole family of of documentaries on Appalachian topics. And but when you look at that film, which came out in two thousand and two, uh, you know, few of the people in it are alive anymore.
0: Sure. Mm. But it has it has kind of I I I don't know if I'd be overstepping my bounds in saying that that documentary though has spawned a lot of um like I think there's like in there like a a moonshine history show or something like that that's going on I would say that that could be oh yeah kind of tied to that um
2: you may be thinking of the Discovery Channel show the Moonshiners maybe
0: yeah Yeah,
2: it's kind of a reality TV thing I've only watched it's not really. You know my kind of entertainment so right (laughs) you know i've come to have i kind of judged that show harshly but i've come to have a softer view of it but it's basically performance Mm. and um i think i don't know this for a fact but i think popcorn sutton basically invented that show (laughs) i would agree what, what we did in in the last one and and his performance in that i think that that sparked that whole idea well, let's
0: let's go ahead and just we'll, let we have so much that we want to talk about or that excuse me <laughs> that I want to talk about <laughs> so, Let's back it up with um, what your background is and an and, int- and uh, sort of like um, talk about your interest in the Appalachian culture and what is Appalachian culture for people <clears throat> Brian and uh, Jason who may not be familiar right with what you what we would consider that uh, culture to be
2: okay um well i don't know do you want to start with a little background yeah i would love to yeah i'd love to
1: know like more about you yeah absolutely okay
2: Okay, sure well i mean first of all i thought it was very funny that you described me as being in the film industry (laughs) (laughs) i guess technically i am but really i'm an outsider and i do stuff you know kind of outside of the usual channels um but so a lot of what I do is kind of on my own without this. And then I and then I work on distribution with PBS, of course. Right. Hmm, nice. um, so let's see. I studied I went to uh, Appalachian State University. OK and um sorry you know,
0: i went to western carolina so i have to throw some shade so
1: yeah but I'm my okay. grand but my grandpa taught at west at, at Appalachia, yeah, appalachian App- State. No,
0: appalachian used to kick our butt in football every single year so i you know i have to have some ire over that but go ahead i'm sorry go ahead
2: yeah they've got a well-funded program up there but <laughs> um so if you went to western you know a lot of the area that i really focused on in mm-hmm. a lot of these documentaries but, that's uh, one of
0: that's one of the things one of my uh, one of the things of that that's so appealing for me yeah. one of the things. But go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah,
2: yeah, you can relate to the the area, the scenery, and the and people. Yes. But, um. So let's see. I got interested in film at Appalachian, and then they were starting a program uh, here in Raleigh at NC State University, mm-hmm. North Carolina State University, and uh, so I transferred and finished up here studying film. Um, and I came out of the program picking up work, uh, producing, you know, contributing photographs and, and video ancillary materials to textbooks, uh, social studies, textbooks and things like that. So I just kind of started picking up work like that.
0: Were you doing like, um, photography for the textbooks or were you doing writing for it or?
2: All of the above. Yeah. I was doing, they, they discovered that I was a competent writer. And so I, I was enlisted not I wasn't writing the textbooks but I did write there was a whole series of ancillary videos mm-hmm. um so they're kind of I don't know if you call them documentaries they're educational programs sure sure so, so narrated programs and I I was able to, to travel a lot in Europe uh as a production assistant and and photographer doing that oh, um, wow. South America and so forth so nice that's kind of how I got started and then I I started I began to work with a A linguist at north carolina state university and so if you i don't know if you've seen my titles but a lot of them deal with language and that's because i work closely with a linguist named walt wolfram um and he had the he has created an initiative called the language and life project to bring um i don't know language scholarship to the public and to do public oriented programs Hmm. and so mountain talk was was one of those
0: so, Mountain Talk was um, was your first official documentary.
2: Um, it was kind of where I really hit the ground. I right. Mean, okay. Sure.
3: okay.
2: And it was kind yep. of where I really found my voice. Um, as a I don't know producer, creative mm-hmm. person. Yep. Um. So but- yeah.
0: So so Mountain Talk is your first. So you're, I guess the, where you said you kind of sort of hit the ground. Which, by the way, um, you can find these documentaries on um. Uh, Neil has a website called Sucker Punch Pictures. Um, is it dot .com? Yes. And it has uh, Mountain Talk. There's also uh, Unclouded Day, which is a, a CD um, that has, I guess, some songs and interviews and like that. That's sort of like an a or a, a companion to that.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, but, yeah, he does, in that particular case, you do focus... On, um, on, I mean, it's on the language and, you know, the preservation and the different... There was a lot of words. I mean, we moved to North Carolina when I started sixth grade. Uh, and we were living in Caldwell County in uh, Lenore. So um, in the foothills and then going to school at Western Carolina, even they had words in that particular documentary I had not even heard of before. <laughs> but, um, uh, but t- I mean... Tell us about the, the genesis of your desire to do like that project, and more importantly, are the mountains truly packed with jelly-making dulcimer pluckers?
2: <laughs> well, no. Well, I mean, I think that leads into the second part of your original question, which is what is Appalachia and, and Appalachian mm-hmm. culture? Yes. And that is, that is a very contentious issue. Um, people, and, and it's a fascinating subject, the more you study Appalachia, the stranger it gets. And the harder it is to pin it down as to what it is. Um, so just to try to put it in a nutshell, like if you define it as a geographic area, it 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 runs basically from Birmingham, Alabama up through, you know, practically to New England. Huh. Um, if you define it as political anyway, and so you define you you try to define it by geography, political boundaries, culture, and none of it holds it together as a region. Mm. And nothing speaks to that more than the fact that. Um, researchers kind of systematically found that um if you ask people in Appalachia where Appalachia is they always think it's somewhere else (laughs) so so it's a really fascinating topic so I mean and it it, it's hard it's hard to make any blanket statements about it right I would would say as far as Appalachian culture um you know in uh, maybe we'll get around to talking about the most recent thing that i've done which is the book about pop yes yeah, absolutely but um i most of the work prior to that like mountain talk and the last one that was all kind of what i might call experiential where i was just documenting what i was experiencing Mm. and i wasn't trying i was trying to be informed by what i was encountering Mm. and i didn't do a lot of research um except enough to make sure that i wasn't saying anything that wasn't true sure Mm. Uh, or presenting something that wasn't true. So basically. Now,
0: are are you, are you from this area originally?
2: Uh, I'm from North Carolina. Okay. okay. Well, I'm from Chapel Hill, which a lot of people have said is not the South. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so I'm not quite sure, you know, about that one. But um, and then, of course, I spent some time up in Boone going to Appalachian State University. But sure. I didn't know anything about the culture. Mm. I mean, I was pretty, you know, I had no idea um sure like anyway so what i wanted to mention was that in in the most recent work i felt like i had to do a lot more research um and i and so i did and i, I really dug deep and i leaned heavily on a history of appalachia by uh john alexander williams so mm-hmm. i don't know if you know that particular book but it's great okay. um and in it I think he kinda of sums it up he says that any like anybody who tries to define Appalachia as a whole they they come up with they inevitably wind up thinking that Appalachia is a construction it's an idea hmm. it, it doesn't exact it doesn't even exist but all the researchers who do on the ground work who are picking up the details in any in specific locations um. They have the opposite opinion because it, you know, they're finding all these cultural uh, nuances and, and documenting it, you know. So, you know, so it depends. On, it's all a matter of perspective, really. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if, you know, what more I could say about that as far as a generalization about Appalachian culture, except it's a it's a great subject. And it's one of those subjects that, like, as you study, it kind of opens up all of American history.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, everything kind of ties into it the the movement of people's down down the um uh what was the the main corridor of the mountains um from basically Philadelphia southwest through the mountains and and pushing for land and they're competing with the land barons and then and then the exploitation by the industrialists and they're and they're uh kind of roping in local labor um and making them dependent on them. I mean, like, when you start to study all this, like, all of American history, you know, is illuminated by it.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, no, yeah. No, the, uh, the well, the Appalachian, just mountain range as a whole, has played, you know, a big role in history, you know, when you had the proclamation of, uh, was it? 1763. Seventeen sixty three, yeah, where yep. they did not allow settlers to go beyond that because that territory on the other side was going to be reserved specifically for Native Americans mm-hmm. who had assisted uh, the English in fighting off the French. Um, I mean that that has been a you know a natural as well as you know that's uh, been a you know an important boundary. Um, but it's it's interesting in your documentaries they do talk about how because, um, and even in your book, the book um, Neil's referencing, he's just released a new book called The Moonshiner Popcorn Sutton. Um, I just finished reading it last night. Um, And, I mean, it's, if you are a fan of the, well, I mean, if you're a fan of the documentaries, this fills in a lot of gaps and adds a whole lot of life and um, context to those documentaries but it's really just i mean it's a beautiful book and in and of itself it has a lot of just a really amazing um uh just information not just about popcorn sutton but about the history of moonshining and that kind of stuff as well um so um that you you can also find on sucker punch uh pictures um it's really it's really good it's i mean it's really a fun read and um the the you know the insights that you have because they do talk a lot about this, I believe he uh references in the book also you know going back to you know the language how um I can't remember who it was, but had mentioned that the language tends to be very chaucerian mm. um which I mean there's a lot of words that you know aren't necessarily in uh in regular usage anymore which you know one which brought a question to my mind. Um, what is your, Neil, what is your favorite mountain word? <laughs> and uh, is there a word that you feel should be used more?
2: Well, I mean, you can't argue with Cy Goglin. <laughs> What in the
0: world? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That is true. Would you like to uh, explain what Cy Goglin is?
2: Yeah, Cy Goglin is when and when something's crooked, you know? It's like, it's like out of whack. And, um, like, if you build something, but it's not built like a house and not built true and it's leaning, you say, Oh, that house is side going, or it could be used in a lot of different ways. But it, there's no question that's a word that should come back into our vocabulary. <laughs> it just makes life right.
1: better. You're right. Yeah. No doubt.
0: They, um, uh, they had, <laughs> uh, um, some of the words, uh, brought up in, um, mountain talk like plum and yuns. I mean, that's like, I don't know if, are there, are there words, I guess, that you could say similar, um, like in Iowa and Missouri that are kind of...
1: So, like, plum, is that like talking about something being, like, either straight up and down or... Uh, no. Okay. Can, uh, will well, you, I don't... We'll use that word in construction, like, oh, it's plum, <laughs> like a plum bob, if you want to make sure right. something is straight, like, mm-hmm. from top to bottom. No,
0: no in Appalachian, uh, plum is kind of like... Um, it's kind of like totally, or <laughs>
3: yeah, like yeah, the like word
0: like, like, like the word vary. Oh,
1: oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah, like it's like that, they it's plum plum lost their
0: mind. You know, that it's, yeah. it would work like that. Gotcha. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll have a little. Yeah, I mean, yes, regionally, there. I mean, I think there. If you were to study lin- linguistics, which I have not, so I'm I'm totally an expert in what I'm saying. <laughs> I I think I think it's safe to say though that every region has its. Colloqu- colloquialism colloquialism colloquial yeah colloquial language what uh, he said stuff. yeah no, that um <laughs> i mean i could come up with with some different things i'm sure if i thought uh, more um but uh it's me and i don't think well on the spot sometimes um <laughs> i mean uh, come back to me at the end of it i'll come up with something for you but yeah i think it i think it exists anywhere you go um you know you can go somewhere and uh, anywhere in the country and they start you know talk oh Here's a good one. Here's a good one. Um, if you were going to have a, a loose meat sandwich with a little bit of a sauce in it, what would you call that? Like it's nice. it's meat, like hamburger that's been browned, but it's loose. Like it's not a hamburger. Oh, like that's, a sloppy that's joe. A, yeah. So you call that a sloppy joe? Sure. Yeah. Okay, where I come from, we call it a made right. On the other side of the state, they call it a tavern. Well, that's just weird. So, so I think that's kind of what we're, it, no, I know, but that, that's kind of, I know, I know, but obviously I, that's outside
0: kinda, of God's country,
1: they call it something else other than Sloppy Joe, but that's whatever, you know, whatever. Anyway, that's what you're getting at, I think, Hatfield.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and hmm. I, I think it's that kind of stuff is, is pretty fascinating because, um, You know, again, in like Mountain Talk, when they talk about how the, um, you know, advent of, you know, television and electricity to these mountains, uh, even radio, I guess, for the most part, started impacting that speech. Um, It's, you know, that sort of, I guess, globalization of vocabulary, almost to a degree. Um, Sure. uh, It's 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 pretty it's a fascinating transformation because that the the Mountain Talk one, I mean, every time i watch one of these it make it just reminds me of home not in just you know (laughs) even you know talking about popcorn sutton and moonshining but you know being a hatfield there's something about it that's just feels like familiar and comforting i don't know not to say that my dad ever moonshined but you know it was like
1: neil neil you are aware that he is part like descended from the that Hatfield family, right?
2: Right. I kind of made, when you guys were talking about it earlier, I made the connection. Oh, he's a Hatfield.
1: Yeah. No. That's, he's that's, right.
2: That's right. There's no McCoys on this call. I don't, I hope. No, we don't. Know.
0: There's, there's never any McCoys on this call. But
1: if you want to give him crap about it, we encourage it.
0: Well, okay. So that, that brings up an interesting point because um, also, and I believe it's in, uh, in the book, you know, you talk about... Um, that uh there is a well-established regional tolerance for hillbilly stereotyping yeah um and it's kind of like that hillbillies are kind of comfortable with um uh with kind of being stereotyped as these kind of like you know rough-hewn you know people outside the you know on the fringes or whatnot um and we've talked about this on this podcast because uh um, Rude frequently likes to uh, give me grief about the Hatfield-McCoy dinner theater in <laughs> Pigeon Forge.
1: Because you deserve and, it.
0: Well, but and the thing is, is that, you know, he's asked me and we, you know, we talked about this on an earlier podcast about how it's kind of obnoxious for me being, you know, because, okay, so my great, great grandfather, I don't know how much you know about the Hatfields and McCoys, but um, Devil Ants, who was kind of like the leader I guess, if you want to call it, of the Hatfields. His oldest brother, Valentine, was my great-great-grandfather. And um, right. so, you know, there have been really horrible movies and Bugs Bunny cartoons kind of right. making fun of this sort of thing. And But the thing for me, and this is kind of weird, and I don't know if it's just because uh, it doesn't – it really doesn't offend me. Mm-hmm. Um, It kind of – even if it's obnoxious, it's a weird kind of, it feels like a little feather in my cap or a little, I don't know how to describe it. It's not like, I don't know. And when you, when you touched upon this in your book in the moonshine or popcorn Sutton, it was kind of like that sort of, yeah. I mean, cause we talked about it on here. Cause they're like, you know, how would you feel about you? know Jason and Brian have asked me, how do you feel about these kind of things? And it's like, I don't know if I would really, I don't know if I would want to sit there and watch it, but, you know, when they did the, the, the History Channel thing, they treated it with gravity and that was, you know, really enjoyable. But I've never really seen something that just offended me uh, making fun of my history. And so I was wondering did, if you wanted to speak to that about this, um, yeah. um, the that willingness to participate or that flexibility of being okay with the hillbilly stereotype for right. hillbillies.
2: Well, you know, not everybody's okay with it. And mm. it's my observation that a lot of times, um, this may, may or may not be true, this is just my observation, is that it seems like, you know, you get a lot of, like, in defensive mountain people type articles and scholarly papers and things like this that are, that are routinely targeting some of the seminal works about Appalachian culture, which are, uh, which are uh, Kephart's Our Southern Highlanders. Mm-hmm. and uh, the Southern Highlander in his homeland by by John Campbell and and works like this they were from the early 20th century they're targeted as as having created the hillbilly stereotypes and they're they're completely manufactured and all this kind of thing <laughs> and I, it tends it seems to me it's a lot of times it's it's kids from Appalachian um, an Appalachian background who go away to school and then they're kind of like uh may they may who knows in their personal experience they may get judged harshly because of their own dialect and where they come from i mean that happens all the time and it seems to be those sorts of people who enter in an academic environment who mount a defense of mountain people and attack the whole hillbilly image but a lot of the people and and there may be room to do that because stereotypes are degrading but uh like you say a lot of the people are very um satisfied to roll with it and i think why this might be is because sometime in the early 20th century there were two strains of like stereotypes of mountain people and it was basically kind of like the degraded um version that i i don't know you might find in deliverance
0: Mm, you're right
2: and then then there's the noble mountaineer right who's like represents and you still see this like people describing popcorn sutton in this way so that it, those attitudes are still out there so this idea of the mountain person as being uh, our ancestors our pioneer ancestors in a in a very noble light mm-hmm. uh, not a very historically informed light, and um <clears throat> neither one is exactly the, is is the truth but there might be elements of truth in in both of them but in the, anyway in the early 20th century sometime it seems like those two strains kind of merged you know so you have this kind of like pers- this figure of character who also has these noble traits or whatever they they're resilient and they're resourceful and they're self-sufficient and and all this kind of thing so it's part of american mythology and i think that a lot of them find have pride in their own culture and they're able to use that as an emblem of it even if it's whimsical sometimes, or even if it's designed to, you know, appeal to tourists to stop by their country store or something like that. So I, 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 you know, I hope that explains it. My, my observations about it. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Um, There's a documentary I once called called Hillbilly. I don't know if you're familiar with it. That kind of went that, Mm -hmm. that same route. Uh, Sarah Rubin and Ashley York put that together. Uh Have you seen it?
2: You know, I haven't seen it. I think I contributed to it. But I mean, was as far as like maybe they had a GoFundMe me at some point and I wanted to I wanted to see it and I know it won a lot of awards, but I haven't seen it.
1: Yeah, and and what you're opening when you kind of open that that uh that section saying that it's people that go away and then come back. That's essentially what she did. She did. I forget which one, whether it was Ashley or Sally that had gone away first. Um, and I don't remember where they went to school, but it was I think it was California maybe. And exactly what you said is exactly what they describe in that, in that film. And so it just, it, it threw me back to that. And I love the film. It was, it was really, really interesting. And you know, they do a whole section on deliverance in that one. Um, here's okay so let's do this just because I'm from Iowa and I'm ignorant um, <laughs> if we were going to compare Deliverance and say Andy Griffith which one is closer to the true <laughs> Appalachia and I, I don't mean to be ignorant ignorant but like that's the two biggest draws that I've got to, to try to compare from
2: uh, you know I'd love to see that movie that kind of combined. <laughs>
3: <laughs> would you hmm.
2: well I mean <laughs> <laughs> Andy Andy
0: Griffith, you know, meets Ned Beatty on the leafy bank. I don't know that would be. (laughs) All
2: right. You're right. Bad idea.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, like, obviously, Deliverance has got to be kind of an overblown, over the top stereotype of Appalachia. I'm curious, though, truthfully, you know, the Andy Griffith show. Is pretty. It's one of my favorite shows, and I still watch it to this day. Um, and it's pretty pretty well known, I think, across the country. And, and produced by Andy Griffith, or at least uh, you know heavily influenced by Andy, who was from North Carolina, based. You know, the show's based in North Carolina. How close is that to what the realities of living in Appalachia are?
2: You know, I can't really say. I, I okay. think it. I think it more speaks to like people's idea of ideal. Of small town America, okay. right, at, at the time. But Fair I, enough. I, I like it too. I think it's a very comforting show. Right,
0: right. I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say that Andy Griffith is Appalachia. I think that's. Yeah, I think that's more small town kind of. You know, America. Um, but, but. But I mean. But. They use those Appalachian um, al- words along that, along that frame of thought, though. You know, you have things like the wild and wonderful whites of West Virginia. <laughs> Um, which I mean, I also, I mean, is someone pointed that out to me and that's like another example of, I don't know how, I mean, I don't know if you've seen that one.
2: Uh, no, I, I haven't seen it.
0: Yeah. It's, um, it focuses on the white family, which, um, in your documentary, hell of a life, I think you got, did you guys went and stayed with like Jessica white and yeah, we did. Yeah. So and that's I mean, and so basically, if I'm correct, it's the same guys that did uh, Jackass, I think, um, (laughs) produced this. Right. And it's kind of like it's sort of like uh, a hillbilly documentary meets, you know, Jerry Springer, almost, I guess. Uh Um, The family is kind of known for being um, rough and tumble. um, And it's you know, it follows them over the, the family over the course of a year. Um, uh, their birdie may, um, dies, uh, during the course of it. And they just, you know, talk about just, but they, they focus on a lot of this, you know, hillbilly culture and it's, it's, and, and I guess, you know, with what Jason's saying, I mean, some of these turn out to be, um, like almost exploitive. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and it seems like sometimes that's what. I, and I'm not saying yours, your um, documentaries take a much more um, appreciative or educational instead of like, uh, instead of like, hey, let's, you know, let's watch this train wreck take
2: place. Right. Well, but, I, um, you know, I always try to, I always try to make sure that I, that I'm not so careful about those kinds of things that I don't um try to include the character and flavor of. You know the actual people, and they and they they are interesting people, and they are unique people, and so I you know I think there's a line there where you don't want to sanctify them, you know. You want to you want to present them as they are, you know, in their in their most positive aspects mm-hmm. as they see themselves.
1: Mm-hmm. Sure.
2: And
0: that's so. Um. That's Rude about- did that. Did, are you? Do you have a, I guess you don't have uh, a a better scale understanding of like what Appalachia would be, I guess?
1: Uh, no, (laughs) no. (laughs) Well,
2: here's something interesting that you might think about is, um, is where Jessica White lives up in, I think it's Boone County in Mm -hmm. West Virginia. And that place, that is fundamentally different than Maggie Valley, North Carolina, where I met Popcorn, um, in that. Maggie Valley, I'm not sure what, I'm sure there's national parks near, up there in West Virginia. There's, there's tons of them near uh, Jesco, but really Maggie Valley sees so much traffic from tourists and so much tourist money that in the mid 20th century, it, it transformed the economy down there. Hmm. And so many of the people like, like the Sutton family, you know, have maintained their own identity and culture, but they've done it in constant contact with outsiders. And so I think what's really fascinating to circle back to um, uh, stereotypes and people's comfort with stereotypes is really fascinating to think about it. I think this is my idea. I'm sure other people have had it, too. And it's unquantifiable. But how much did that contact with people who already had an idea about who mountain people were before they met any of them? Because they got got their ideas from stereotypes, from TV, films, and media – how much did their expectations shape the local behavior, right? Mm-hmm. So when you look at Popcorn Sutton, who seems like unbelievably iconic in his, in terms of a hillbilly, like is his persona has it been shaped by the expectations of these outsiders? And, and has that helped him to kind of make a living, you know, by mm-hmm. selling them his, his books and mm-hmm. selling his photograph? of himself and, hmm. and so forth. So I don't know if that makes sense, but I think that's a really interesting.
1: It absolutely that, makes sense.
0: Yeah. That was a, a another thing that um, talking about the stereotype, um, how much, you know, popcorn Sutton, which I guess we can go ahead and start getting into that. Cause I mean, he's, I think through your documentaries placed him um, into, I mean, I have to say that I I've been to a lot of parties when I was in college and there have been once or twice where there was a mason jar um involved and so I think there's a good possibility at some point I did have some of popcorns moonshine especially since Maggie Valley's kind of up in that area. Yeah. But um uh how much <sighs> there how much do you think well, okay, well, let's get into your okay, so we talked about the mountain talk. Let's get into the last one. Let's talk about hell of a life. Um, uh the last damn run of liquor I'll ever make. Um, this is when you uh you made these documentaries. Um and there's so there's this guy by the name of Marvin Sutton, but they his name was Popcorn, and apparently, uh, depending on when you asked him, um, he preferred popcorn pretty much. If you do, if you knew him, that was the name that you know he went by. Um, according to your book, it dealt with him um, losing money on a uh, trying to get popcorn out of a machine and destroying the machine with a pull cue. Right. <laughs> and so he sort of got the the name popcorn from that. Um, how much of that? I mean, because he he's obviously a very he's through the course of last damn run of liquor I'll ever make. Which was a documentary that uh, you went out and um, filmed this whole process, and then I guess edited it together for him to sell, right? And um, that, and you use clips of that in the last one, um, which I believe that's the one that you won the the Emmy for, which talks about basically the history. It goes more into the history of bootlegging and moonshining and just. Uh, Uh, Appalachian culture but talk to us about um and popcorn you know now you go into like a ABC store and they have like popcorn Sutton moonshine um because because of your documentaries and this you know not you know this infatuation that I have with the the culture and how you present it that makes it um almost I guess I don't want to say romanticized but it makes it it's kind of like what I feel the West Wing did for, like, politics and history. It just makes it more uh, uh, accessible. Not necessarily uh, accessible. Yeah, maybe accessible, but just makes it seem, like, cool and oh. whatever. Um, my wife and I were on a, a family vo- uh, vacation in Hilton Head, and we went to an ABC store to get some, uh, some stuff because we were going to be there for a week. And while we were there, um, I w- they had some, you know, moonshine out for um, sampling. And <laughs> I just started Jeez. talking about um, Popcorn Sutton, because I think uh, they had some of his jars out there. And because I knew so much, the owner of that particular franchise, I guess, at the ABC store, walked in, was impressed, and he gave me 15% off my entire order because Ooh. I knew about popcorn. So first of all, thank you, Neil. <laughs> um,
3: my pleasure.
0: But, um, so... So, okay. So, before we get too deep in, t- tell us about that process of mm-hmm. getting to meet Popcorn, how you met him. Cause I know that this is also in the book. Um, but, um, to get him to film, to agree to film something that was obviously illegal, um, getting, I mean, because getting him to, to, to have a, you know, a trust in you and, you know just speak to us yeah. about that all that experience
2: okay well you know it was a gradual process by which we we really didn't become i would say good friends and in you know until after that was made because mm. that was a that became a very popular film and i don't know after that in its in its you know measured success um You know, Popcorn and I just started hanging out after that. But, we were, you know, we were friendly, but there was a mutual advantage to it. You know, he -hmm. he liked the attention, for one thing. Mm -hmm. But when I first met him, I was working on Mountain Talk. I was in Maggie Valley, and he had a little junk shop at the end of the road. And I was sent to him by other people. They were like, oh, you need to meet Popcorn. Because he was (laughs) (laughs) so I was like, I could just see this, you know, this weird light in their eyes. I was like, okay, you know, that sounds like somebody I should meet. So. Um, eventually I, I tracked him down and he was very, um, cautious about being on, talking on video at first, Mm -hmm. which is hard to imagine, you know, but, um, (laughs) he, so, but he agreed, he, he called his girlfriend and she came down and checked me out and talked to me for a little while. And then I got the approval. And so we went up and we did an interview for mountain talk. And then I would come as I kept working on that project, I'd come and he'd, I'd, I'd stop in and see him and he always took like he wasn't living by normal people's schedule so he always took <laughs> tons of time out for me and he'd take me driving in his a model through the mountains and and anything i was interested in uh what's branch lettuce i don't know you know like he was talking about eating branch lettuce and he was like well let's go you know and the, so we went and we cut and collected a bunch of branch lettuce and he took <laughs> back to the house and he cooked it up in little cakes and anyway so um was it good yeah it was good you know it, it it was fine. I mean
1: <laughs>
2: it was basically like fried cornmeal with the with the branch lettuce like packed into it. So
1: right. oh, okay. how can you go wrong? Right, yeah. Right.
2: <laughs> um and so as far as like doing something illegal on camera, um the, you know, that was really it was really popcorn's idea, the whole framework. That was part of his genius. Uh in in, in terms of like presentation and present presenting himself. Um, so I wanted to do a documentary on him and I was kind of like getting him warmed up to this idea. But he came to me with the idea fully formed. He's gonna make his last run and he wants me to film it and and he was gonna, you know, do it in the woods and everything. So that was the framing of it was really his idea. And when I was worried about participating in something that might get him in trouble, mm. I Never mind me, because if I got in trouble, that makes a great story. Mm-hmm. But, um, but uh, I was worried, and he he said, uh, "Oh, who who gives a you know?"
1: Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: And I was like, okay, well, I guess that takes care of that. And you know, it it never did. He 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 was eventually in trouble, but it wasn't because of any of the stuff he did on video. So
0: the, yeah, there is a. It, it... There was that's one of the things I was always kind of concerned about because there's a there was a great amount of risk of what could potentially happen when you're actually filming you know you know something like that in process and uh, and and I know that you guys I think you wrote about what the possibility was if someone happened to find you guys in the midst of doing all this Um, and popcorn does during the course of the documentaries and in your writing have he gives very little um um f's about um
3: a lot of what
0: i mean like at one point in um so there's last damn run of liquor which was what the the filming that you did and showing that and then you had the um the last one and then hell of a life came out hell of a life is a very poignant uh documentary talking about his struggles with the law and struggling with um uh, a lot of things um but like at one point um at some sort of um I think, was it in Pigeon Forge where he did a, uh, there was like a, a, a yeah. hillbilly f- or like a mountain festival or something like that. <laughs> and he ran, he built his still and ran it there in front of God and everybody. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and hands out little Dixie cups of, you know, he couldn't sell it. Um, and the people that were running the thing said, you know, please don't sell this. You know, this they would love to shut us down. And that, I mean he's just and he's not selling it he's running it and handing it out to people. <laughs> yeah. And it's like and he a lot of times, you know, I think at one point um where is it he uh he says um <laughs> someone's talking to him during this whole process and he says um uh, they're like, "Well, tell me about, you know, uh there's the uh about the carrying this stuff around and how, you know, it's, you know, how it used to be illegal. And he's like, um, he, well, it is still illegal, And he's like, well, you know, then how do you, how are you able to do this, you know, with it being illegal? And he just says, I just do it. Yeah. I mean, he just does not. Um, he, he really, <sighs> I, it, he yeah. gives so little, he cares so little about he just if he wants to do it, he does it. right. And
2: yep. sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. no, 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 go ahead. okay. yeah. well, you know that's very true. Um, and nobody could really tell him what to do. but at the same time, I, I believe that a lot of that was much more carefully calculated than it seems.
3: Mm-hmm. On this
2: purpose. it was it was a big risk. Um, not just making it in public, but just all the stuff he did. And I, you know, because well, what we know about moonshine is it's against the law. Um, there's laws against it. But in those areas of the country and a lot of places in the country, the public isn't against it. Right. Right. So there's a public, there's sort of a social sanction. And even people who are against alcohol, who don't drink alcohol, a lot of times they don't mind it and they and they appreciated what he was doing. I, and I think because they felt like it ties into their their heritage, um, so there there was this. He kind of coasted it and operated in that gray area between that social sanction and the, you know, the and the law, as they existed. Mm-hmm. Um, that's and, an
0: interesting point.
2: Yeah. So I think that's. So I think was, it was calculated, but in the end, I think he also was going to push it as far as it could go.
0: Um. And we actually have uh, Jason. If, th- if you got that queued up, we actually have a clip from—I think you used it in—well, um, from the last damn of liquor, but uh, it's also uh, in the last one where he describes the different names and what kind of um, whiskey he's going to uh, to make. And uh, if it's okay, I'd like to to play this clip so people can kind of get a flavor of what popcorn was like.
4: Some of this liquor I've heard of, I've heard them name different names for it like Painter of Piss and Who Shot John, Block and Tackle, you drink about a pint of it and walk a block and tackle any damn thing you see. And uh, mule, uh, White Mule, I've heard to call that. And two cats are fighting. Oh I've many names for it. Splow. Allie Jim. I can't take them more right now, I'd not like five maybe. I've got that CRS disease, I meet up with it. Can't remember shit. <laughs> yeah, I've made all kinds of liquor in, in my time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, keep, keep, wait, keep going. Keep keep playing this.
4: i made the fighting kind, the loving kind, the crying kind, I even made some one time and sold it to this couple. They was happily married. The next damn week is divorced. <laughs> what kind are you making today? this I'm gonna make today. Got four damn fights to a pint.
0: There
4: you go. <laughs> <laughs> he, I mean,
0: just to, to be able to sit down and listen to some of the, th- the way that he just, He's got so many. His 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 stories and languages are always peppered with these just great. I don't even know how to describe them. I do not have the correct words. Um, (laughs) um, He describes, I guess, uh, his uh, wife at the time, or um, about she's. He says uh, he uh, defines her as the the finest woman that ever shit between a pair of tennis shoes. And it's just, I mean, there's just, he's, it's so colorful. And I think that does also play into the whole, you know, storytelling, you know, mountain culture kind of thing, uh, interaction. Um, but I am curious how much of that is popcorn and how much of that, cause he was obviously a savvy businessman. Yeah. Um, how much of that is him and how much is he playing into that stereotype?
2: Uh, wow it that's really you know nobody can know that but it seems to me like it was both authentic mm. and a performance at the same time like he hmm. he just kind of leaned in on it and he recognized the part the aspects of himself that he could kind of you know rely on people being interested in but you know i i described it earlier as calculated but i think that the his legal jeopardy relative legal jeopardy was very calculated but i think as far as that goes i think that was all instinct mm-hmm. and long um, and it, you know you can tell from that clip even from that short clip like he just had an uncontainable personality
1: yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes
2: and so um just to circle back to one thing you were saying earlier about that in the last one uh that it seems almost romanticized or uh you're you're trying to find the right way and i know what you're talking about because When I was making that, and when I was filming, uh, this is the last damn run of liquor I'll ever make, in my mind, I'm thinking of this is iconic, and I'm trying to present this in a way that is representative of something larger, Mm. of heritage and things like that. So that was definitely informed my own perspective and my own choices in making that film, that it wasn't about popcorn as an individual, that it was about the activity and it was about something larger. Now, at the same time, obviously, you can tell, like, he's just going to, like, a plan like that, like, he is going to burst through it because, you know, his personality is so striking that it it can't be made into, put into a box like that. But anyway, so I think, but it was part of that, was trying to draw larger um, ideas from the whole scene, the whole scenario of him making moonshine in the woods. Hmm. when I when I got to uh, Popcorn Sutton, a hell of a life. It was di- it was kind of like trying, but it was very successful in the sense that like people help look at that and they like to um, describe popcorn who they have never met in ways that are complete very simple. Like that like we were talking earlier about the the noble hillbilly, and he's he's just honest and all he wants to do is run some shine and sit by the creek and play his banjo and they're like telling the story about this guy that i've never met you know and it's and it's very much like ennobled and simple you know it didn't have that much to do with the guy that i knew so a hell of life was attempt an attempt to revisit the subject and and um do a more biographical piece that centered on him as an individual
0: Okay. Now in um in hell of a life, you know you you do I think, use some of those interviews, I guess the, the original ones I, I'm assuming that you had done for mountain talk, perhaps the first ones. right. Um, and um, it kind of uh, it documents the struggles that he has with the law because um, despite the fact that the last one was the last run of liquor he was ever going to make, um, there was a fire that took place on his property. Um, and when I guess the fire department came out, this was in 2009, uh, seven, seven, 2007. And, um, they came out and found, um, several gallons of, uh, moonshine. They found the still, um, cause apparently the, you know, fire had started from there. And at the beginning of hell of a life, okay. The, the still that he uses in the last one is what he refers to as a piss pot, um, and in this particular one, this is a pretty sizable still that he's running. And the amount of, he's using burners instead of wood, and it just looks dangerous to watch him with all this fun. But, you know, he's been doing this for, you know, 40 years. Uh, he knows exactly what he's doing. Um, and, um, I guess, the, I guess, did the still itself explode?
2: No. Um, but it not only looks dangerous it was dangerous yeah (laughs) and and there was there was as i've tried really hard to kind of present that scene accurately where you see him biting the stills and so forth but there's just no way to do it because the smell he runs them on unleaded gas (laughs) gas his gas tank is is something that he made from an old water heater and he and he pressurizes it with a bicycle pump and then I guess after I don't know exactly how the the quote unquote technology works, but after, <laughs> after a little while, a air compressor kicks in and works. But anyway, but the smell of unleaded gas in that shed was almost stifling, and he, mm. he's lighting that thing with the flames shooting out. I was really my knees were shaking. I thought the whole building was going to blow up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it looks. I mean, I, it would scare the hell out of me. Yeah,
2: and I'm sure he's
1: there. smoking too, right?
2: Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> and then to, and then to make it worse, like the racket in there is so loud; those stills just scream, and the flames are screaming. And then they start to like, as they heat up, they start to like groan and like, eh, eh, you know. and oh, it, boy! It, it was, and like you say, but what well, you say, you know that he knows what he's doing. I'm not quite sure about that one. <laughs> but he had, the fact that he had done it for 40 years—that is true, you know. So I just had. I mean, I had to be in there to film. Otherwise, I would have run 100 yards away to watch.
1: Oh, my gosh. But, um, yeah, Sounds like people when I'm shooting fireworks. Oh, yeah. Rude's a pyrotechnician. So a legit, he, he like, legit like... pyro. Like, I do, like, yeah, side job.
2: Oh, you would have enjoyed the whole scene then. Oh, yeah. Oh, without a doubt.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, um and the um hell of a life i mean they, they just you know it talks about him and it goes through his um arrest and uh the court proceedings and uh for people that uh, are unaware um uh, popcorn uh, is you know through this process he's sentenced um i guess it was it to 18 months was that correct mm-hmm. yeah 18 months in jail and by this point um popcorn's uh he's he's pretty sick he admits that you know he's not feeling good um and he will eventually um commit suicide um by gassing i guess he uh gasses himself in his favorite a model i guess was that correct uh
2: um, it wasn't an a model it was but it was his favorite
0: car oh it was his favorite car okay um he apparently ran a tube um from the exhaust mm. into the uh into the car and um gassed himself that way um when i I remember that coming out in the news and i had just been kind of like um introduced to him through the diet and all of a sudden i was like no he's such a cool guy but um
3: yeah
0: um what tell us about i mean you you again you write you 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 touch up on this in in the book you'd gotten to cultivate this friendship starting off with you know you know, getting to know him, you know, sort of co- I guess either coaxing him or his uh, coaxing you into, uh, you know, kind of doing these documentaries. Um,
3: mm-hmm.
0: um, tell us about, you know, the I mean, what your relationship was and then, you know, finding out about the news at the end.
2: Sure. Um, well, let's see. I was up there all the time for a while for, for many years. And um,
0: is your palate, you know, pretty defined when it comes to different moonshines now, or? <laughs>
2: uh, I've had my share. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's very diplomatic. <laughs>
2: uh, um, but uh, yeah, actually, well, f- one funny thing is like, you know, I visit him over there, and um, it took him a while to let me in. So I knew we were friends when he let me come to his place in East Tennessee, which is where you see those big stills, um, hmm. they operate. So he let me come in and see that. And he also let me film it on the condition that I don't show it to anybody before he dies. Um, and in the end, it wouldn't have mattered because he was busted you know, he had gotten arrested and all that stuff. But, um, actually in, in any case, nobody did see it before he died. But, hmm. uh, so, you know, but, and I kept filming with him and you see a lot of that in a hell of a life. Um, but most of the time, I wasn't filming at that point. I just came to visit and hang out because I loved being up there. Um, it just felt like you were, you know, lost somewhere off the map, hmm. and it was the coolest place. And he always, he always was very generous. He always had a cool, cool beer waiting for me, and he always, <laughs> was a great cook. Which, and, by
0: the way, Ice House. I was impressed that he apparently was a big fan of Ice House.
2: Yeah, he liked them.
0: And and I used to get go- crap from my friends in Wilmington because I always drank Ice House. So which all is, of a it's I kinda, super I, again, strange.
2: It's, I feel- it, it's commonly known as a very weak beer, which is an odd irony. <laughs> <laughs> well, it used to not be because in North oh. Carolina, in North Carolina, it wasn't until oh god, I don't know when. Like it might have been the '90s when you could get beer above like three point five percent or something like that. Yeah, 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 and so. Huh. Ice House, we would go, when I was in Boone, we would drive over to Tennessee and pick up Ice House because it had more alcohol in it. Ah, well. So it is, it is a weak beer by current standards. Gotcha. At that time, it was hot stuff. <laughs> 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 but anyway, yeah, he liked the little bottles of Ice House because they were always fresh, you know. Nice. Mm. But uh, yeah.
0: So you'd go up there and hang out with them.
2: Yeah, so that, those were really fun times. And I was working on other projects in the area, so sometimes that would make it easier for me to get up there. But um, I kind of lost touch with them a little bit, mm, 2006, 2007 or so, um, and because I was working on the coast of North Carolina, so I was down there all the time, and I didn't have time to go. But um, so I saw him less. But then after he, let's see, 2007 was when he got busted, and then like, oh, it was only a month or two after that that he got married. And so, I was up there for that, and I filmed, you know, uh, the wedding and the ceremony and things. And um, just in the last few years of his life, I really didn't see him that much until right near the end. I kind of like reconnected and was up there a lot. And um, uh, so I spoke to him. The last time I spoke to him was, uh, I think it was four days before he died and Mm. um of course this has been on my mind recently because it was march 16th so that was uh 12 years since he died Mm. oh wow and um but so you know he he called and i assume that he called a lot of people that he knew Mm -hmm. and this happened periodically we did talk on the phone a lot and um and he would like to just you know uh shoot the breeze and tell jokes and stuff like that like and it was the same as always um except that he like it was should have been suspicious but he was expressed a lot of appreciation to me hmm. and of course i reflected back to him i was he he you know i said i said you know this has been so much fun for me i has been such a privilege to do all this work and everything um and um so you know that was that but that was a sign i I didn't pick up on but then it was Mm. obvious he was kind of telling everybody goodbye Mm. um but uh i think you know there's a uh, i get to see this is a subject i don't uh you know it's a little bit touchy but um like a lot of times if you look on like the youtube clips of popcorn and the comments like that i tend to see a lot of comments that basically simplify it as like the government killed popcorn Mm.
3: right Mm -hmm. so they
2: so there's this equation drawn that he was facing eighteen months of of uh jail time this old man who was sick and and the context that people have for thinking about this is the last one where he's built this copper still in the woods and everything kind of telegraphs heritage and history you know and they're not really they're not really digesting the full story yeah. um, right so there's a simplification and so and so he killed himself right when he you know, had 10 days left before he was supposed to report for prison. So, um, so sometimes people like to say the government killed popcorn Sutton. And, um, you know, I understand that perspective. There's this very anti-authoritarian, very strong anti-authoritarian streak in the culture. And, um, but I've got a different perspective on that. Um, you know, I think popcorn was in the driver's seat the whole time and Mm. That's not a very good metaphor under the circumstances, but popcorn, <laughs> was, in, popcorn was in charge. Jeez. Sorry, popcorn was in charge, <laughs> and he was calling the shots, and he knew what he was doing, and I think he was determined to push the story as far as he could, mm. and then when it was convenient to him to check out, um, and then if you know, if you've seen the last one if you've seen the last damn run of liquor, you know that he was talking about his own death even then, mm. right? He that he wouldn't live more than five years. Well, he talked about it all the time, like like you know off camera like he was always saying that he was about dead and he he wasn't going to be around much longer and all this kind of stuff like he was just waiting for the cue to take off and so i you know i don't want to minimize like i don't know what it would take to make that step and i don't want to minimize it but at the same time Mm -hmm. i think it was i take comfort in the fact that i think he was totally ready to go and it was totally Mm -hmm. his choice and i think he delighted in the i mean i i just have to I just have to know this in my heart, is that he would have delighted in the idea that people would would see that he left the government empty-handed. You know, they never <laughs> got him. Right. So, you know, I think that if you say the government killed Popcorn Sutton, to me, that takes away from him what, right. I, what I believe he felt was a victory. That's right. a fascinating perspective.
0: Yeah. I had not thought of that before. That's very... I knew this interview would be awesome. <laughs>
3: um,
0: there, um, um, in Hell of a Life, you know, um, it's you know you're documenting, you know, not just his life, but you uh, you know, there are times where he's taking you around what he called the uh, asshole of the world, <laughs> which was Hemp Hill, which was where he had grown up. Um, and he references in a lot of his conversations, uh, he's he seems very he never he seems to never really want to talk about hemp Hill. He never seems to really want to delve into that part of his life. He, But though he does, um, in some interviews that you have with him, revere his father, uh, I don't hear him speak very much about his mother, but um, he does seem to. Um, At one point, he references how the last six years of his life uh, at one point, I'm assuming that was towards the end, Mm -hmm. uh, were the best years and that everything else, you know, prior to that was sad for him is how he um, how he portrays it. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there any is there any insight that you have in terms of, I mean... Yeah. Well, I mean, because his child—I mean, he—he he talks about you know, smoking and drinking when he was six years old, and I just wondering where. What do you think that sadness um, or those feelings stem from?
2: Well, obviously, it, you know, if you saw Hell of a Life, you saw him talking about his childhood memories, and he obviously was very sentimental about his his childhood. Mm. Um. So I think you know, I think it was rough, but I think he. I, you know, I, I, I think he, he fondly remembered his childhood. It was probably over way too quickly. Um, he did honor his father. As you said, I, I don't think he had, you know, I, I think he honored his, his mother too. He just didn't speak about her as much. Um, and so uh, just to, to take the story back a little bit, like when I described that scene of meeting him in the store when his girlfriend had to come down and, and approve of me or whatever, she warned me. She took me aside and said, just don't ask any questions about his family. Hmm. Right. So I had that. So of course I didn't. And uh, I had that in mind, you know, through for years. And I never, and I only kind of like very gingerly approached the subject um, a few times. And it was really only in that one interview in a hell of a life that we got into much detail about his parents and his childhood and, and those kinds of things. But there's a huge middle part of his life that he never talked to me about. And as far as I know, he never really talked to anybody about. And um, so when I was making A Hell of a Life and when I was doing other things uh, on the subject, like, I never felt like I should explore that because it wasn't part of what he shared with me. Sure. But in an early mm-hmm. – I had, I had a, a, a friend, one of my old film professors, who was kind of reading early drafts of the book, and he was like, look, you got to – people are going to want to know, like, what were his relationships – like, in his life and this kind of thing. There's something missing here. And so I was like, you're right. You know, this is the time to, um, to look a little harder at that. So what we know is that he was married several times. Um, he had, they, apparently they all ended badly and somewhat abruptly. Um, he was, as the incident with the popcorn machine illustrates, where he got his nickname, um, he was pretty hot-tempered. And he he was not what you would call middle management material. Like he, <laughs> uh, you know, he, he acted he he acted quickly, um, all the time. And so, you know, I can only imagine that there were, you know, when there were problems in the relationship that they just ended, you know, like blam, and he was gone. But there's also kids. He had kids, and those were in his background as well. And those nobody knew about them until after he died and then since then i've been in touch with two of his daughters um Mm. there's there's other people and we don't really know exactly how many there are um there's other people who have chosen to be anonymous as far as Mm. i know so that was the middle part of his life and i think that's the heartbreak um that he constantly refers to in the past but actually sorry what you asked me about was his home place and what happened
0: there so no the, the what you're going into in terms of the relationships was also something that i was curious about because in your book um he you do reference about the fact that he has children and sometimes the children didn't weren't even aware of each other as right. siblings yep. um and one of them had written a book which um uh i had also looked up and i was like okay well now here's another rabbit hole i'm gonna have to go down thanks neil but um <laughs> But um, yeah, but yeah, um. So I was curious about that, but yes, please uh, go on about uh, the asshole of the world.
2: Right. Okay. So the asshole of the world. Well, I can only speculate, but um, my suspicion is there was some issue with his sister, and that was something that I didn't include. He talked about it on camera, and he enjoyed it, and that was something I never used the footage for because I didn't think it was fair just to have his perspective and not to know his sister at all. But by the time I met him, he really hated his sister. (laughs) Um, And as far, and I know people who knew his sister and I, and she seems like a fine person. I don't know. Like, but I think that, I think that she was perhaps involved in his liquor business. And then something happened, but we know that he Hmm. was busted in the late nineties, right before I met him. Um, and so it could have something to do with that. But he, he bore yeah. a grudge. And um, afterwards, he, he didn't like to go uh, past that area. And as you saw in the footage, he said he wouldn't have been there except he was showing me around.
0: Right. Yeah, he, he does not. He, it's, it's very apparent in the interviews um, and the documentaries, uh, the footage that you have with him, that he, he does not enjoy talking about that, you know, that area very much at all
2: right but um, on the other hand he can't resist kind of like alluding to it like he, right he just get he says i'm not gonna say any more th- about it we'll just cruise by there and you know but he so he, if he couldn't resist it but he at the same time he would stop short of actually giving you any information
1: right,
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> and um um the uh and one of the things also in the book talks about um i guess the day that he had um uh committed suicide uh that i guess I, I i was curious because knowing that he passed away and yet now there's this brand of popcorn sutton um moonshine that's being commercially made um one i was wondering i mean is Is there, I mean, are they using, is it just like they're just slapping his name on it? Or were they actually trying to use, because I don't know if he necessarily had a recipe per se. Um, Is it just, you know, going off of that sort of uh, notoriety? And I was also wondering if you could speak to how the process is of making Moonshine based on um, the wealth of experience that you've had in the (laughs) filming and stuff like that.
2: (laughs) yeah well the process is still a little bit of a mystery to me as far as the quantities and stuff like that and i had him go through it with me several times but i couldn't quite i never quite remembered and i didn't take notes but <laughs> so if i was to make it myself there would be a significant trial and error but um as far as uh let's see the first part of your question was uh sorry what was
0: it? The, no the uh well let's well, we can talk about let's talk about how it's made and then we'll talk about his the commercial popcorn sutton moonshine okay, so right. going like making the mash into all that
2: right so uh it, it's actually a fairly simple process to make liquor um anybody can do it more or less uh, <laughs> most people have everything they need in their own kitchen they could probably do it um but to make a palatable liquor and to make a good liquor and one that you can sell and keep customers coming back, that's takes a real artisan. So that's been my observation is it's, it's, it's not about the process exactly. It's about the details and attending Mm. to the details. Um, (laughs) and of course he had a, he had so much experience with it that, um, he, he became very, very good at it. So, you know, what you do is you take grain or, Corn, uh, which is what they which is kind of what distinguishes moonshine is, is corn liquor. Um, because when they when the Scots-Irish brought the technology to the United States, what they had here to work with was corn. Sure. Um so uh, so you take corn and grain and you you make a kind of you let it ferment in water and make a kind of I'm probably botching this all up, like somebody <laughs> 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 like this guy doesn't know anything uh you make it you make a kind of beer with it and so once it ferments and it it has the mash is also called beer um and and it's you can drink it it's it's uh got an alcohol content of whatever it, it varies um and then you put that in a still and so the way this the way the distillation process works is you you heat that up and you carefully regulate the heat and by doing that because alcohol evaporates at a at a
3: uh, lower, lower temperature, temperature.
2: water. Yeah, right. So, so that way you extract the alcohol without creating too much water, uh, too much steam. Okay, and so that's basically how you extract the alcohol. It flows as steam, and then you, um, th- what they they use what they call a doubler or a thump keg, uh, which you've seen in in, in the film, mm-hmm. um, and that is where the the Alcohol vapors are pushed through um, either more mash or more um, or low-proof liquor from a previous run, and what hmm. that does is it heats that and it and it doubles the proof of the liquor, and so that's and then it and then it is channeled by steam, and then the vapors channeled into the um, flake stand or the the uh, the coil or the cooler. I, I'm losing my the worm
0: he calls it the worm a
2: lot yes and um so that's that's a copper copper coil that's kept constantly cool and the vapor condenses it back into liquid and then it flows out and so what you get then is is liquor that's ideally on a good day like 180 proof um and it's it gets and you know it's more complicated than that like the the liquors that come out at first uh is not exactly is not chemically the same alcohol that comes out in the middle it's not the same as later um so a lot of the expertise comes in knowing which parts of it to keep and mix together and which parts to throw away Hmm. so if you've had moonshine and you've got a, a awful hangover the next day it could be you know it could be that it wasn't it was either done by somebody who wasn't very skillful at that and so they included too much of the liquor that yes makes you drunk but also is very very bad for you or um, they were they knew what they were doing and they were just trying to make more money and not throw you know being cheap about it and not throwing away the parts that were that are not the best parts of the distillation sure
0: Mm. and um, I think rude was just thinking how in Iowa they've got so much unlimited access to the core ingredients for making moonshine
1: well, here's, here's what's interesting. We can make the jokes about uh, uh, that if we want, but I'm going to tell you right now, that to, to my knowledge, at least until the next one opens up, the largest still in the country is sitting about, actually in the world, is about eight miles east of me right now. There you go. East of you? East of me. Now it's not what you're thinking. You got to remember Hatfield. In Iowa, we go with biofuels, so we have this thing called ethanol, right? Which is basically the same thing. It's the same process. So the, yeah, pros- the it's uh, the
0: exact same process. Yep. So they, they use. Um, there are some places that will use part of that ethanol for making. Uh, there's some distilleries here that don't actually distill the alcohol themselves. Like you've got Top of the Hill that will distill their own alcohol. Um, But then you have like the Durham distillery and uh, some others that actually ship the ethanol in and use that as the base Mm. for their uh, for their which which is fine because if they don't have the money or I guess, you know, the uh, the the space or the you know, the knowledge on how to to, to distill the spirit themselves. And I mean, that's the only other option, I guess. And but there is something about it that if they're going from you know, scratch and making this stuff. That's something for me that's, you know, it's very impressive to do. Uh, my wife and I have gone around trying to, uh, we've gone on distillery tours
3: mm-hmm.
0: um, because the process of, you know, in in the last one and last damn run of liquor has been, you know, it's fascinating to see how that works, how the process, because then when you sample the product, then it's kind of like there's a deeper appreciation because you understand the components and how it worked and so your brain's kind of working into okay, you know, trying to, you know, figure those flavors and things like that out. So um but what is that what is the the, the still or whatever that's close to you?
1: It's an ethanol plant.
0: Oh, okay. Well, it's, it's a go.
1: At the time, so as of the last time I was out there, it was the largest ethanol plant in the world by volume. Uh, and basically what it had to do was how much corn they could have on site. It was like 1.3 million bushels they could have on site at any one time. There's trains going through there every day. There's semis coming through there every day. I mean, they're producing a lot of a lot of spirits. Now, the thing is, um, when the, I can't talk all of a sudden. Uh, or maybe never. Uh, but anyway, they have to make it so that it is unconsumable to humans. Like, it has to be used for that purpose. And they actually have to basically sabotage the, the quote-unquote drinkability mm. so that it can only be used for fuel. Hmm. That's a waste. Well, <laughs> but... And so, like, now that we've had the, the, the pandemic, obviously hand sanitizer is alcohol-based. Right. And it's right. also the same process. And yep. so here around here we're like, oh my gosh, we're set. We've got ethanol plants across the state. Like, just start taking it out. And it was a big to do because because of the taxation of alcohol and, and truthfully, distilleries and wineries and microbreweries in Iowa have become a massive, massive industry. Like mm-hmm. It, it it is a big big deal up here. They're popping up all over the place. Uh, Toppling Goliath has become a very popular microbrew, which is based in my hometown of Decorah. Um, you know, it, it, it it's it's becoming huge up here. Uh, so the taxation on on that it was a a sticking point, and so they had to basically go in and legislatively change things so that these ethanol plants could produce large volumes of. Of ethanol that could be used for hand sanitizer,
0: and you you bring up an interesting point that during this whole pandemic you could have, I mean, easily had Sutton sanitizer.
1: I was going to say Sutton. I mean, that he, ah, if only you'd have been here, that's a huge market we missed out on.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I am curious with you know because with the you know the the commercial. Manufacturer now, granted, I know that this started up after you know his passing, or I guess towards the, the end of it. Do you think that he would have gone that route with the relaxing of restrictions, or do you think he just would have continued doing it the way that he always did it?
2: Wow, that's an interesting question. Um, I think he would have continued the way he or, he always did it, but I hadn't really thought about that before, and I think. That it, with restrictions relaxing, I think that actually would have made, would have been sort of disappointing to him, <laughs> because you know his, his identity was of an outlaw, sure. Right. And even, you know now we're past his death. A lot of people are treating him as a folk hero, but when people did that in his life, he would, you know, amp up the expletives and the dirty stories and things like that. Like he was trying, he was trying not to get that kind of hero treatment. So I think it was important to him to, to be an outlaw, and I think the re- relaxing the rules, I think that would have been stressful for him in a weird way.
1: Mm. <laughs> Gosh, dang it, I, now I, what do you mean I can't go to jail for this now? <laughs> right,
2: I, 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 <laughs> life, yeah been my whole life doing this, now what? Yeah. Exactly. Well,
0: I mean that would have I mean, because like in the book, you know, you talk about how he had built this new house and how he literally had someone come in and I guess thumbtack dollar bills. On the ceiling, yeah. Oh my goodness! One of the rooms. There's a picture in his book. That's it's it's like seriously, yeah. It's like I mean they did I. I mean, it looks like it could be just you know like wallpaper or something you know along the ceiling. Uh, Of course, I think that would be confiscated by uh, the ALE. I think perhaps.
2: Yep.
0: Um, when they came in. Oh goodness! But um, yeah, it's he's just. I mean, first of all, I appreciate everything that you do in these documentaries in terms of just investigating in the culture because your documentaries are more than just about moonshine and it's more than just about popcorn Sutton. It's really about um, the region. It's really about the uh, the preservation of that as well as the education of that. And which is, you know, it's, I kind of feel like as much as I love the Wild and Wonderful Whites of West Virginia for a completely different reason, <laughs> um, um, you know, there's because I, I kind of feel like that's more explo- exploitation, I guess, but it's still entertainment. Whereas, you know, yours, um, typically, it, it, it is more it's it's more celebrating and more honoring, and it's kind of like I don't I hate to use this term, but it's more like a love letter to that culture. Oh yeah. Um. And I've always appreciated that because, I mean, it, you don't you don't tap dance around the fact that what's happening is illegal, but you talk into the reasons of, you know, why it's why it continues or why it was continuing during that particular time. And all your documentaries, uh, Mountain Talk, even the um, Unclouded Day. Uh, I think you also have a CD uh, of your interviews with Popcorn Sutton mm-hmm. um, for sale on um. I actually got a, a copy, a free copy with the with the book when I pre-ordered. Um, that um, Hell of a Life is a completely different documentary than your. I mean, they're all different, um, but Hell of a Life is it just has a different gravitas towards it than you know the last one, even though it's the same. You know, you've got popcorn and Sutton. It's still about the culture and about you know uh the struggle and about pushing back against outside authority i feel like um so those are i mean so if you have not had the opportunity to take a look um at these documentaries and of course you have this new book that was just released this month uh the moonshiner popcorn sutton um it's also just it's it's fascinating if you're a fan of the documentaries then this is a great companion piece if you've never seen the documentaries i personally recommend uh that you take a look at them um and the book is just a really fascinating uh like companion to go along with those because it does add a lot more context and adds uh a lot more depth to Mm -hmm. the experiences that you had it's 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 really good so um um thank you for uh are are, are, sh- are we gonna be expecting any more or because you had said in this book that this is kind of okay, this is everything I got left
1: this is yeah. the last damn book yeah Thanks. this is
2: <laughs> this is the last damn book I'm ever gonna
0: <laughs> right <laughs> and then there's a fire and then they find like thirty more documentaries
2: <laughs> at your house No, this um, is it on on popcorn I've got one more appalachian piece to to complete um, mm-hmm. and then I, after that I don't know.
0: Okay. Uh, well, uh, these have been uh, fascinating. Rude, did you say that you had another yeah, question? Yeah, so uh,
1: the agreement that nobody knew about is that I get to ask one ignorant question. Uh, oh, and it's, it's blissful ignorance, not Buckle intentional up. ignorance. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> I, and I, I apologize in advance.
0: Oh, boy.
1: That's never a good way I'm to start off. I'm
2: looking forward to this. <laughs> <laughs> it,
1: yeah, don't get your hopes up. It's not as good as you think. Um <laughs> So we always hear what about. What if
0: C A T really spelled
1: dog? <laughs> it's not that. Oh, okay. <laughs> we always hear about a uh, a, a particular uh, sport that came out of moonshining. Of course, that's that's stock car racing. I'm curious to know where popcorn stood on the whole stock car racing thing, uh, and if that is. Accurate like if any of that stuff ties to Popcorn at all
2: Uh, It doesn't but People have tied it to popcorn Really and and it relates to What I was saying about him being mythologized By his fans like In the most simple You know the simplest ways Uh, you know I've Seen people make comments that he invented that Popcorn Sutton invented NASCAR (laughs) So Like that's great I love I love the way you know culture is so creative (laughs) and in the future that's going to be in our middle school social studies textbooks, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, but the fact is he didn't invent NASCAR. And in fact, um, you know, but it is true that of course that that came out of moonshine culture, right? uh, The whole, the whole car culture and, and, um, racing because people would run, I mean, this is well known, I guess, but people, you know, north of atlanta and north georgia you know they they run the liquor into the major metropolitan areas which were the markets for the moonshine sure in terms mm-hmm. of uh so yeah so that whole car culture came out of that and because popcorn sutton is such an iconic moonshiner i guess people would associate okay. him with that and he could talk a little bit about about liquor cars and talk trade but that wasn't really part of his life sure um he had roots because he grew up in, um, you know, the Smoky Mountains National Park covers a lot of Western North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And he grew up on one side of it in Maggie Valley. And uh, he wound up operating uh, in East Tennessee on the other side of it. But mm-hmm. there's tons of roots through the park. And so that's one of the things that I speculated on in the book was, was that I think that the park really su- sustained moonshine activities longer than they would have been if it hadn't existed. And one, you know, for many reasons, but one of them is that uh, it provided routes that were, you know, off the major roads. Hmm. Um, now, I, I speculate that that's a fact, but what Popcorn did most of the time is he drove it straight through the Pigeon Valley Gorge across state borders and straight down to I-40. So I don't think he relied on those secret passages all that much. <laughs>
0: So, yeah, at, at one point in uh, the one of the documentaries, he talks about how they were doing a ribbon cutting ceremony for i forty, and he was hauling yeah. liquor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he said that you could, it didn't have a muffler. You could hear this thing from like five miles away. And uh, when you know he rounded the corner, and you've got state troopers, you've got police <laughs> all gosh. over the place. <laughs> And he just killed the engine and just coasted right by all of that, and then fired it back up. And he says they never caught him.
2: <laughs> um. Absolutely, my favorite story. And one of the reasons is not just because it's it's the whole image is funny, but when you think about that as historians, you know, it's like it's like this is major kind of celebration, recognizing this this kind of transformation of the of the area of the region. <laughs> you know yep. the modernization of it and here's popcorn like still with both feet firmly in the past you know he doesn't care and uh, <laughs> vacating this traditional activity that's totally outdated and so i think that's that story is funny and it speaks volumes
1: <laughs> that's great that's
2: awesome
0: <laughs> yeah he's um i i cannot recommend enough um these uh you know the documentaries i mean he is he is a colorful person And again, one of the things that just really that I love about watching these, I still I mean, I watch them periodically. I actually went through all of the material that I have in preparation for this uh, interview today. Um, But uh, and the thing that sucks right now is that, okay, so my new car that I just got doesn't have a CD player. And so I'm going to have to find a way to kind of like, you know, tra- get transfer this to like MP3 so I can like try and listen <laughs> to this stuff in my car and load it up in my phone and whatever. But um,
2: talk about outdated. Uh, technology outdated <laughs> yeah. culture. like what, what
0: am i doing sending people cds <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah but yeah like i was thinking the very first car that i drove was a 78 beige dodge aspen station wagon and it didn't have a cd player or a tape deck either so i kind of <laughs> feel like we've come full circle <laughs> so um but there's always about how the people talk and you know like, uh, my wife is from Ohio, and so I'll be watching some of this stuff, and she's like, I don't think I can understand a lot of what this person's saying. And I'm like, well, I, you know, that's, that's – <laughs> it, it makes me feel at home when I hear this kind of stuff because when I went to Western Carolina, I was pursuing a, a, a theater degree, and they I had to focus on not sounding like that <laughs> so that I wouldn't be pigeonholed as, like, the redneck or, you know, that kind of stuff. And so I had to focus uh, a lot on trying to make sure that I didn't have that, you know, the, the thick accent. Um, of course, you know, if I imbibe, some of that loosens up a bit. <laughs> but um, um, but yeah, these are fascinating. And I, I, I just I can't recommend them enough. If you're I have a lot of friends that have been sending me messages. I, we were posting on uh, social media, which, by the way, um, History Bros Pod um you know subscribe like you know send us you know questions um uh and a lot of these a lot of my friends who are also fans of these documentaries are all excited about getting a chance to listen to this so um i so first of all uh i want to thank you yep uh, for taking the time to to come on uh and uh, answer these questions it's uh it's been
1: a very happy day for me.
2: Wow, thank you. I'm honored to be here.
1: I just um, appreciate you putting up with us.
2: That's true. <laughs> You're welcome. <I'm>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, uh, but yes, it's on um, uh, suckerpunchpictures.com. Neil Hutchison, thank you again for, um, for coming online and, um, and having this interview with us today. And we wish you the best of luck on uh, your new book, The Moonshiner Popcorn Sutton. Uh, Pick it up. Um, I actually have an autographed copy. One number one hundred and fifty-two of three thousand. So I'm just saying, you know, it's it's not a competition. (laughs) I just already won.
1: Yeah. um, yeah.
0: But uh, but thank you again so much for coming on, and uh, we wish you the best of luck in the future with uh, with whatever projects you're going
1: to be working on.
2: Yeah. Thanks so much.
1: Absolutely. So for the history bros. My name's Jason Rood, joined by Jason Hatfield, Brian Geldmacher, and today, an honorary history bro and much more knowledgeable and much more interesting Neil Hutchison joining us. Thank you, everybody. Have a good one. See ya. Peace out. Deuces.